0: Outside the Golden State, California conjures up images of glitz and glam. Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Silicon Valley. Yet the state has the highest poverty rate in the nation. And the chasm between the ultra-rich and the poverty-stricken continues to widen. How is it that a state with ongoing economic growth, pockets of vast wealth, and one of the nation's largest social safety nets can still leave so many of its residents behind? It was to answer this question that the Cato Institute launched the Project on Poverty and Inequality in California in the spring of 2019. Drawing on the Cato Institute's decades of expertise in fighting poverty, we've examined ways in which California can help people get out of poverty and fully participate in the state's economy. We've also tapped into the knowledge of Californians on the front lines of these issues. As the result of our research, we learned that too many California laws are regressive trapping people in poverty and making it harder for them to climb the economic ladder. These policies involve criminal justice, education, housing, the existing welfare system, and regressive regulation. As a result, we are offering a series of recommendations about how California can do better. Well, good morning and welcome, and thank you all for uh, coming out on a Saturday morning and for braving uh, COVID protocols and all the rest that goes with this. Uh, As you heard, I am Michael Tanner. I am a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and I'm director of the Cato Project on Poverty and Inequality in California. Uh, You all have a copy of our final report, which was uh, actually technically released on Thursday in Sacramento. We had this hand-delivered to every member of the California Legislature. And to uh, the delegation, the congressional delegation in Washington. But it was also delivered electronically and it is being delivered by regular snail mail uh, to every mayor in California, every member of the city councils in California, every county supervisor every city manager, and every uh, director of county welfare offices in the state. So we are trying to make sure this information gets out as widely as possible. Uh, we are, all, are going to be taking questions and answers from you folks uh, on these recommendations that we're going to be making. Uh, we do want to give you all a chance to be part of this discussion and our, the various panels we have, and the mayor later on will also be uh, be making uh, Taking questions, uh, I have been asked to advise everyone to please keep your masks on uh, if you're not eating or drinking according to the uh, the local requirements. And uh, if, when we get to the question and answer session, if you would wait for the microphones first and then speak clearly so that we can hear you through your mask and understand you, that would be that would be helpful. So, uh, we now live in an age where you, you know, you talk to somebody, say hi, and they say, so, uh, so we would like to avoid that as much as possible. We are recording, audio recording this, and, uh, and so we want to make sure that we do get a chance to get, get your actual questions. So what we'd like to do is talk a little bit about what we found in terms of our study. We've been out here for over two years Uh, I've been making trips about every other week to California, at least pre-pandemic, and then uh, as you open back up again, I've been coming back out. I've visited uh, nearly every part of the state. Uh, My staff has been out here as well, other Cato scholars, to try to find as much information as we can, and in particular, we've been meeting with folks on the front lines. We've met with uh, political and business leaders. We've met with uh, activists for various organizations. We've met with people who are serving the poor uh, on the front lines. And in particular, we've met with Californians themselves who are experiencing poverty and experiencing homelessness uh, and tried to gather as much information as we could from people who are really affected by this. We put it all together, and we've come out with a few recommendations here, 24 of them to be exact, and uh, and we're going to be talking a little bit about them. But I did want to call attention to one of the things that we mentioned in the video, and that is the fact that California, despite such vast possibilities, so much wealth in this state, nonetheless still has the highest poverty rate in the nation uh, after you adjust for both benefits and cost of living uh, in the state. uh, You know, that California should have a higher poverty rate than places like Mississippi or Louisiana that you associate with poverty. Uh, Clearly, something is not working in the state. You have a safety net, you have wealth, you have economic growth, and yet still so many Californians are being left behind. And for a state that values an egalitarian ethos and has progressive tax rate and and strong social safety net, uh, an interest in reducing inequality, yet there are still only four states in the nation that have a higher level of inequality than does California. Um, this particular chart uh, references the Gini Index, which is a widely accepted measure of, uh, of inequality between rich and poor. And you can see that, uh, that California does not fare particularly well uh, compared to other states on this. And we know that poverty is not, of course, not equally distributed uh, throughout the state. It's not geographically distributed, but it's also not uh, distributed by group. Uh, that th- this reflects the various groups' poverty rates. Uh, Latino population has the highest poverty rate in the state. Uh, African Americans also have an extremely high poverty rate, much higher than the, both those groups are much higher than the average. Uh, but you can see, actually, even uh, the, uh, the Asian Pacific Islander population uh, has a high poverty rate, uh, multiracial groups, and then finally whites down at the bottom, but even among whites, The poverty rate is obviously far too high, far higher than it it should be. So we have a problem here in California. We know that. What can we do to to deal with it? We specifically have 24 recommendations that deal with such areas as housing and homelessness, education and workforce, criminal justice reform, reforms to the existing social safety net, and what we call economic inclusion, but basically bringing more people into the growing economy, that you have out here. And let's start with housing and homelessness. This is an issue where I knew, you know, we knew that housing was a problem. I'd written about it in, in my books. Uh, we knew housing was an issue and that you had a homeless problem out here. Had no idea until we started coming out and actually spending time on the streets out here and time talking to folks out here just what an all-inclusive problem this was and how many, how, what a great impact it had. In fact, it has an impact on almost every other problem that we're going to talk about. The zip codes you live in and whether or not you have access to affordable housing impacts all sorts of things. It has an impact on education, for example. Too much education goes on by zip code, where wealthy zip codes uh, have a very different uh, access to educational opportunities than people in low low income uh, zip codes. That it has to do with whether or not there are jobs there. It has to do with how you're treated by law enforcement. All these sort of things are tied to housing patterns. Uh, and we know that uh, California has, of course, the highest housing costs in the nation. The, uh, the cost, uh, the average cost of a ho- home in California is about $800,000. Uh, the the cost of uh, renting an apartment is, uh, for a two-bedroom apartments, around over $2,000. In some places, like in L.A. here or up in San Francisco, you could pay $3,000 on average to to rent a uh Two-bedroom apartments, You can imagine what somebody earning minimum wage, or someone at the poverty level, what it's like to try to find affordable housing. Uh, if you're in that category, uh, just simply looking at this is a measure of rent burdened uh, uh, populations. Uh, rent burden simply means you're spending more than 30 percent of your income on housing, uh, which is what's the nat- you know supposed to be recommended. And the nationally, about 30 percent of people. Uh, uh, are considered rent burdened. Uh, if you're in the lowest income category in California, almost 89% are rent burdened. Uh, and all the way up, uh, basically, you're higher than the national average unless you earn more than $75,000 a year in California. So clearly, there's a cost of housing uh, problem here. And essentially, the, it's a problem of supply and demand uh, for a lot of reasons, growing population. pack fact, that people want to live in California, uh, you have a demand for housing. People, people want to live uh, here, <coughs> but you're not building housing to keep up with it. At one time, you actually were building uh, housing faster than the rest of the country, and that's no longer the case. And by some estimates that are out there now, you're three and a half million housing units short of what is necessary to deal with the existing population. And this, you know, this is sort of economics one one It's not the only cause for the housing shortage. It's not the only reason housing prices are high. But you, know, you don't have to be a Nobel Prize winning economist to understand that if you're going to have a demand for, for housing and you're going to restrict the available supply of it, that the cost of housing is going to go up. Uh, that's sort of basic logic. And tied to the cost of housing is increasingly the problem that California has with homelessness. There's uh, over 150,000 homeless people in the state. Uh, In California, I believe it's around 68,000 in Los Angeles County uh, that are homeless. Uh, In the Bay Area, it's around 28,000. Even in a city like San Diego, you have over 8,000 homeless uh, people experiencing homelessness uh, there. Uh, That's a tremendous problem. Now, I know, you know, there's people who say, well, the problem with homelessness is not necessarily a problem of high cost of housing. If you go out in the street, you have see a lot of folks, sort of visible homeless, that are suffering from issues of substance abuse, uh, mental health issues, things of that nature. But we also encountered a great many people who are suffering homelessness in California, and in fact, perhaps a majority of the people suffering uh, homelessness who are, not simply, who are simply not visible in the same ways, Uh, that are simply have fallen to the street because uh, for whatever reasons they've lost their housing availability and they cannot find affordable housing to meet their their needs. Uh, You can imagine if you manage to squeeze into an apartment to find something that's under the average, under the median cost, and you were able to stay in that apartment, and then something interrupts your income flow, Uh, whether that you lose your job or you have a health issue or a family crisis, Whatever the reason is, you, you lose that apartment. It's not necessarily going to be easy to find another affordable apartment and off end up on the street. When we found people, when, as we were going around California and talking to folks, we found California state government workers, teachers, emergency room nurses who were living out of their cars because they couldn't find an affordable place to live within reasonable distance of where they worked. We found people, and we were up in San Francisco, I could tell you I'm talking to somebody, driving in from Stockton every morning, about three-hour drive to get to their work because they couldn't find an affordable apartment closer than that. that. That clearly is tied to the problem. So what should we do about it? We have a number of recommendations. We actually have eight recommendations in dealing with housing and homelessness that are included here. The first of these is we think we need to put an end to exclusionary zoning in the state. Now, we've taken some steps. California recently passed SB 9, SB 10 uh, to basically do away with the idea of single-family-only zoning, which which govern most of the state. Uh, prior to passing SB 9 and 10, uh, if you looked at the state, depending on exactly how you defined residential property in a... In a but Somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of all residential areas in this state were zoned for single family only housing. Uh, SB9 and 10 now let you build duplexes on that land. Now it says something about California, I think, when you talk about major, pro- major progress is that you can actually build a duplex. That said, uh, you know, and you can subdivide lots if they're the reasonable size zone, but there's still now enormous zoning barriers to building more housing. You still have minimum lot sizes. You still have minimum setback requirements. Uh, one of the ones that I understand least is that you have minimum uh, parking uh, space requirements. You have to have one and a half parking spaces for every apartment, that sort of thing uh, that you build. Uh, all of these sort of things still act to limit the availability of housing, multifamily housing in particular in many areas uh, of the state uh, and until you deal with that, you're, still, you're not going to be able to solve the problem of affordable housing. Second, and tied to that, we think you, that those uh, municipalities that have not yet moved to a uh, buy-right or a ministerial approval process should do so. Once you've met all the requirements uh, for building new housing, you should be able to build it. You shouldn't have to have secondary review, which is what the process is called in California, where after you've met all the requirements, then you still have to go to the planning board or the county supervisors and let all the NIMBY groups come in and tell them why you shouldn't build uh, that housing despite the fact that it meets all the requirements. Uh, This can drag things out both in cost and time virtually forever uh, out there. Uh, Third, we think you need to deal with the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, uh, this is something that every politician we've talked to across the board, didn't care whether Democrats or Republicans, who, who, conservatives, liberals, didn't matter who they were, everyone we talked to, from the governor's office down to folks at the local, local levels, said something has to be done about CEQA. And we would say, well, great, so you're going to lead the fight to overturn CEQA. And they said, oh, no, we're not going to talk about it until, but if, but if you happen to get it done, that would be a great thing. Uh, We definitely need to, you know, CEQA is a, look, California is justly proud of its environmental laws. It's done a terrific job uh, on protecting the environment and it should continue to do so. But CEQA too often is turned into simply a weapon that can be used to both extract uh, payments or to prevent the building of new housing uh, in various areas. Uh, there's so many famous cases around California that my favorite was from Cal- was up from up in the San Francisco way, where they were building an apartment building uh, in downtown San Francisco, and next door to it was a Russian spa. And it turns out that the building the new apartment building was going to cast a shadow across the roof of the Russian spa, where they liked to sunbathe nude at uh, certain times of the day. Uh, so they threatened to sue under sequa. Uh, to prevent, block prevent that shadow from uh, overtaking their nude sunbathing until they were paid off a certain fee for every member of the, uh, of, the of the spa uh, in exchange for that. There was another famous case up in Berkeley where, was, where a building was going to cast a shadow on a municipal garden, and that held up the construction for years. Uh, these sort of things go on uh, all across the country. Something has to be done to make it easier to build, and that has to mean having to deal with, with sequel reform one way or another. We think you need to standardize and cap building fees. Uh, that we, we understand municipalities have an issue that building new housing is a cost to municipalities. You have fire, sewer, water hookups, all these sorts of things. There, there's an impact there. But too often, fees are simply seen as a way of gaining more money. Uh, particularly with Proposition 13 limiting limiting property taxes, and, and schools taking up the majority uh, of property uh, taxes that are available, uh, municipalities are looking for new money, and, and developers are an easy target for this. But in many cases, it's somewhere between 80 and 150,000, 160,000 dollars per door uh, before you can start building, simply in the, in the fee process. No wonder you're building the luxury apartments and not affordable housing if you're starting off having to pay you know, $80,000 in fees before you, per apartment, uh, per door, uh, before you even start. So if we want to have more affordable housing, we're going to have to do something to limit fees. They should be standardized across the state, and then they probably should be capped. I know there's legislation I saw to cap it at 12% uh, of the cost of the project. Just things like that are probably steps in the right direction to dealing with that. We want to reduce the power of local uh, agency formation uh, committees. Uh, Basically, these uh, determine municipal boundaries. But in addition to sort of infill housing building downtown, we also want to be able to build around the edges of communities. Uh, And the problem with LAFCOs is that they're by law required to consider only three things. Preventing urban sprawl, preserving agricultural land, and preserving green space. That sort of biases them automatically against the idea of building housing in these outlying areas. Uh, we think that that should be considered a, an important step along with, along with the rules that they currently have to induce or take into account. Uh, looking at homelessness specifically, we think if you reduce the cost of housing, we we'll reduce the number of homeless. But there are a number of steps we can take directly to deal with homelessness. Uh, one thing you shouldn't be doing is re- using the police. As a homeless agency, we think that the use that criminalizing homelessness uh, is a step in the wrong direction. Um, too often, what happens is that the police go in. They, there's these homeless encampments, and believe me, I understand. You know, you look. Yeah, I've I've been down, and I have been to, to Skid Row here in L.A. I've been to some of the areas in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, and some of these, and and been through a lot of these homeless encampments, and I understand the quality of life issues that uh, people deal with. But you send in the police to sweep through these encampments, for example, what happens is you end up, you destroy their tent, you throw away their medication, you get rid of their, they lose their identification, you throw them in jail for the weekend, and then you let them out on Monday and you say, okay, you're out on your own again. What do we think's gonna happen? Where are you going to, you know, put them? Now, they, they were worse off than they were before you, before you destroyed everything. And yet, you know, now they're back on the street again. You haven't solved the problem. With law enforcement is not equipped to be a homeless agency. On the other hand, there are, certainly are going to have to be needs to how do you move people into shelter, how do you move people into treatment for substance abuse and so on. And one of the things we think we need to do there is to strengthen California's conservatorship laws to deal with people who can't make these choices for themselves because they are simply too far gone in substance abuse or mental illness to be able to make these decisions for themselves. Now, obviously, we need to protect civil liberties as we do so. You don't have to be a Britney Spears fan to understand just how bad conservatorships can be. But, but once we make and take into account civil liberties and once we protect people's rights as we do so, there needs to be a mechanism to take care of people who simply are unable to take care of themselves and to move them into into better treatment. And then finally, we do think we need to expand CEQA exemptions for homeless uh, projects. You're building a shelter. You're building a navigation center. You're doing things that are designed to take care of people who are are homeless. CEQA should not be used as a weapon to simply hold that up. Uh, one, again, a case up in San Francisco where the Embarcadero homeless shelter, 165 beds. They've got 28,000 homeless people in the, in the area. They're trying to build a center with 165 beds, and it was dragged out for years through sequel fights in the courts. Uh, now, I believe LA is one of those cities that actually grants exemptions for this, but th- this across the state, uh, ser- projects that serve the homeless should be exempted from sequel rules out there. So those are things we think we can do to to bring down the cost of housing and to deal with the problem of the homeless, people experiencing homelessness. Uh, Education and workforce. Look, this one should be another no-brainer. The fact is that a good quality education is an obvious step on the road out of poverty. Uh, For both the current generations and future generations, you need to provide people with a good quality education, but the fact is that California's education system is failing far too many students, and particularly just failing low-income students, at-risk students, and students of color. Uh, we know that this is a huge problem. Uh, this, is a, this chart shows the uh, graduation rates, college readiness, college-going rates for different communities. You can see even the statewide average is not too bad for, for graduation, but far too students or a few students are going to college or college-ready. And if you look at uh, those who, for example, English is not their first language, uh, college and career readiness is only about 15% uh, of of high school graduates there. Uh, Homeless youth, low-income families generally are not college-ready and uh, are not uh, career-ready when they graduate high school. So something clearly needs to be done to improve the education system here. We think that that should start with removing barriers to charter schools and other alternatives. The fact that the state is so biased against charter schools and alternative education doesn't make much sense. Charters in California outperform uh, traditional public schools. This is particularly true for at-risk students and communities and students of color. The charter schools do a better job in terms of education than do traditional public schools, and yet the state remains biased against them in so many ways. It wasn't just a couple couple of years ago that the state actually debated legislation that would have capped the number of charter schools, would have limited the number of charter schools in the state. And it still is the case that in terms of, for example, the funding formulas for at-risk students, charter schools get a lower bonus for taking in at-risk students than do traditional public schools. Despite the fact that they are more likely to take in at-risk students than a public school, they are actually receive a low, there's a funding formula rewards you if you take in at-risk students. Uh, Charter schools get a lower bonus than does a traditional public school for doing that. That makes no sense whatsoever. But we think it should go beyond simply charters, and that is to create more power and control for parents and and children. Too much of California's education system is, is fo- uh, policy is focused on education systems. We don't think systems are what's important. We think students are what is important. And therefore, there should be more emphasis placed on students and parents, more control given to students and parents, more freedom given to students and parents. And frankly, there needs to be more competition within the education system itself. So we think one of the ways you can do this is to create a educa- uh, tuition tax credit program This is where you can receive a tax credit for contributing to a fund. That fund goes to low-income parents that they can use for a variety of educational sources. And that can be simply hiring a tutor or buying a computer for your kid. Or it can be to get tuition to a private school in areas that, uh, that might be the best education alternative. But it should be available to parents to do this. Uh, in terms of the public schools, one of the things we think needs to be done is restructuring the pension system so that more resources actually go into the classroom. Uh, the fact is that uh, despite increases in education funding, too much of that's not finding its way to teachers. It's not finding its way to books. It's not finding its way to schools generally. It's simply being eaten up by the, uh, by the uh, teacher pension system, and we think that that needs to be done. Now, I know you have a Supreme state Supreme Court decision out here that makes it impossible to change pensions for existing teachers. But we think for new entrants into the t- uh, new teachers out here, uh, they should be moving to more of a defined, be- uh, defined benefit or defined contribution system rather than the defined benefit system you have now in order to reduce pension costs so that more of that money can go to the classroom. And lastly, we think there should be an increased emphasis on vocational education and technical education, voc- both tech education and apprenticeships as part of that. In terms of uh, preparing students, not everyone is going to go to college. Uh, There's a great emphasis uh, on the idea that college is a great leveler, but not every student is prepared or wants to go to college. There needs to be alternatives for them. Uh, One of the areas, for example, that we looked at is in terms of apprenticeships. You have to be 18 and out of high school in order to become an apprentice in a trade. Uh, we, look, you know, you could be 16 and you're a junior in high school and you know you're not going on to college. You know you're going into a trade. You're going to become a carpenter or a plumber or an electrician. You should be able to apprentice at, the, uh, at an earlier age in terms of, of, of doing that. Uh, we think starting giving kids more opportunity, changing the education system, improving the education system is going to lead a great many people out of poverty. We also think you need to address criminal justice reform. Uh, as part of anti-poverty poverty efforts. And, and uh, people, a lot of people say, well, what does criminal justice got to do with poverty? The studies are overwhelmingly show that there's a link between criminal justice, the criminal justice system, and poverty. In fact, uh, studies out of, uh, I believe it's Vanderbilt, shows that if we could do comprehensive criminal justice reform, we'd reduce poverty rates by about 20% overall. And we know this because, look, 20% of Californians have a criminal record. That criminal record can keep you from getting a job, Despite ban the box, it still can keep you from getting a job. It can prevent you from getting housing. Landlords can find out, you know, ask if you have a f- conviction, and they cannot rent to you. It can keep you from getting uh, scholarships to get into school. It can even keep you out of many schools, and, and many professions still don't allow you to be uh, to be in this. I actually was talking to. Uh, I was at uh, Fresno State University, uh, the center uh, up there, and I was talking to a fellow who was graduating with a master's in social work. Uh, but he couldn't be a social worker because he had a, uh, he had a felony conviction on, on his record. Uh, so he was not allowed to be a social worker. Uh, those sorts of things. So what do we think we should do? California Crime Works. I know I was going to say that it's not popular right now to talk about criminal justice reform because everybody's talking about getting tough on crime again. The fact is that California's crime rates are near historic lows, uh, and you can look at this. People blame the rising crime on various reforms that have been done. You can drop those reforms in here, and you see no change in, in, in the declining crime rates. There's the, now, we are up in 2021, I will say over 2020, but most experts believe that is, that's largely a result of coming out of the lockdowns that you, if we've had over COVID and some things that relate to that. So what are our recommendations? One by one is to simply resist efforts to roll back recent criminal justice reforms. You just saw that uh, with the referendums in the last election, but there's, that the, basically the criminal justice reform is still popular, despite what some of the politicians are trying to do with it. Uh, we think you need to keep in place those reforms that, that have been made. Second, we need to reduce over-criminalization generally. There needs to be a complete review of the Criminal Justice Code And the idea of taking those things that are essentially victimless out of the criminal justice code, they're not necessarily things that should be policed uh, as a way of solving problems. A heavily armed police officer is not a social worker. The police are not the answer to every social problem that this state this country faces. So we should look at things like drug laws and whether or not drugs should be criminalized. Uh, states like Oregon, for example, are moving to decriminalize the whole range of drugs. We should be doing that here in California. We should be ending laws against sex work that both that, that push sex workers into ever more dangerous areas and that, that facilitate trafficking and things like that. We should make it possible for them to practice their professions. We should look at the increasing criminalization of tobacco. Uh, do we really believe that if we're going to make vaping and tobacco use crimes that that's not going to particularly harm communities of color we should know by now that the criminal justice system does not treat all Californians equally that the criminal justice system is biased from top to bottom against low-income communities and communities of color and we should be certainly be taking that into account before we make things more more crimes out of things Uh, We should be expect. We should curtail the use of fines and fees as punishment. Uh, Too often, uh, you know, someone with a low income gets picked up on a very minor offense. They get assessed a fine that they can't pay, and the things just escalate. Often, this is just simply a traffic accident. You get picked up for uh, a minor traffic offense. You're speeding, or you you go through a red light. You get hit with a fine that you can't pay. They end up taking away your insurance and then you lose your driver's license and then you can't get to work and it just sort of escalates in these things. Uh, I know California is supposed, judges are supposed to ask whether you can afford, the the law says they're supposed to take that into account, whether you can afford a a fine and penalty. That doesn't happen in most cases. And so there needs to be uh, movement away from the idea of fines and fees uh, in the criminal justice system. There should be a mechanism to automatically expunge criminal records. As I mentioned, 20% of Californians have a criminal record today that can prevent you from getting a job or getting into school or getting into uh, to housing and so on. Well, you need to, and, and, you know, there's ways you can go to court after you've been out. You can ask a judge to, to clear your record and so on. But, you know, most people can't afford the lawyers to do that sort of thing, especially low-income people. What we need to do is to set up a mechanism where your record simply clears itself if you keep yourself clean over a certain period of time. So let's, you know, and you can put it on a sliding scale depending on the crime that's been committed. So if you're arrested for a drug offense, I mean, first of all, we should be expunging people who have marijuana arrests. Uh, since you know, I, you know, I can walk down the street and buy it right now, but, you know, somebody who bought it uh, 10 years ago has a felony conviction on, on their record. That simply makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, but other crimes you can look at in terms of things like, uh, you know, simple assault. Maybe that's five years if you keep your nose clean. For five years, that goes away. Maybe if it's a more, comp, you know, a, a greater crime, it takes 10 years or something like that. Uh, maybe 50, you know, 15 years for others. Yeah, obviously, if it's something like rape or murder, you're, you know, it's either much longer or, or, or it stays. But you can set that up so automatically your record is sealed and expunged after a certain period of time. States like Pennsylvania and Utah are now looking at this, for example. Uh, California can follow the, follow those rules. And then finally, within the criminal justice system itself, there needs to be more preparation for people going back on the street. If people are serving long prison sentences and then suddenly dumped on the street with no ability to understand how the, how the society has changed over the years, with no follow-on services, without the mental health services that they need in order to, become, to avoid recidivism, uh, there really needs to be a greater effort uh, put, into, uh, put into that. Welfare. The current state obviously has a fairly extensive welfare system. It has one of the more generous welfare systems in the nation. Uh, but there are things that certainly we think can be done better. Number one is we think you should abolish asset tests uh, for CalWORKs and other programs. Now, you have raised the asset test to $10,000 in the state, but it still makes relatively little sense. You don't... Spend your way out of poverty. You save your way out of poverty, and yet the this, this sort of backwards incentives within the uh, the current system uh, encourages you to spend and penalizes you if you save. So, if you're uh, on uh, CalWorks and you get a welfare check and you take that check, you come out, You got some money left over at the end of the week. You've been very frugal, and at the end of the week you have some money left over. If you take that and run down the store and get the latest athletic shoes. Hey, that's 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 cool. We think that that's fine. If you take the same money and put it in a 529 account for your kids to go to school someday, we'll take away your check. Uh, if you have a car that's valued over ten thousand dollars and so on, uh, so you can go look for work, we're going to penalize you for that. Uh, many poor people have houses that they can't get out from under because they're underwater in them. It's considered an asset. You can't that you know things like that. You lose your benefits for things like that. Basically, this shouldn't be a penalized, and it actually will save taxpayers money. The cost to the state of having to go through and find out what everybody's assets are if they're on these programs far exceeds the amount of money that the state saves by getting people off the program. So it's simply administrative savings as well. We think the state needs to do a better job with its welfare diversion programs. California is a state that has a program for welfare diversion, and by welfare diversion, what I mean is a lot of people, poor people come in because they have to face an immediate crisis. They come into the welfare office. They're going to lose. If they don't get enough, a couple thousand dollars, they can't pay their rent this month. They're going to end up on the street. Something needs to be done. They've got a medical emergency. They've got a family crisis. They need a certain amount of money to solve that problem. Too many, the traditional welfare system says, well, we'll sign you up, and you can get a check every two weeks from here on out, and we'll bring you into the welfare system with all the problems that that creates but we won't solve your immediate problem. Under these diversion programs, you come in, you can get a lump sum payment of a certain amount of money in exchange for forgoing your eligibility for traditional welfare for a certain period of time. So maybe you get a $2,000 bonus up front and you can't get welfare for six months, uh, that sort of thing. California has that type of program, but very few, there's a chart in your your report that shows very few counties in California actually utilize this program or utilize it to any particular extent. Most of them don't use it at all. And the reason is that the incentives for the folks in the welfare departments is that if you get someone on welfare and then you get them off, you get a bonus. If you keep them out of the welfare system to begin with, you don't get any reward for that. That, That's actually part of the federal law. That's part of the TANF law that that does that. It passes down to the state and then passes down to the counties. There needs to be incentives within within the existing welfare system for counties to take better advantage of these programs. And then finally, we need to prioritize payment, cash payments over in-kind benefits uh, for welfare. Most welfare is not in the form of giving money to poor people. Yet people are poor because they don't have money. So instead, what we do is we, tr- we treat, we, we don't treat poor people like adults, where we give them a check and then we expect them to take care of themselves, budget for themselves, make decisions on what they want to spend that money on for themselves. Oh no, we treat them like children. So we, give, we don't even give them money for housing. What we do is we give money to their landlord. Then we give money to their doctor. We give money to their grocery store. We give money to the electric company. We give money to everyone except them. And we make those decisions for them. Maybe they want to spend a little more money on food and a little less on rent. Or maybe they've got a big family and they want to go the other way around. They're going to be a little more frugal this month on, on their health care bills and they're going to spend more money. In terms of they want to get a slightly bigger apartment, we don't let them make those decisions. We should. We also need, you know, if you get cash treats sort of like people like, uh, you know, it's not a matter of who can navigate the system better, uh, and and who can fill out the forms best in terms of how much benefit you get. We should basically, we should be prioritizing that. And there is a mechanism available for that. California has an earned income tax credit, which has been fairly successful. What it should be doing is expanding that earned income tax credit, but on a, ca- a funding-neutral basis by taking these other programs and rolling them in to the earned income tax credit and giving people cash instead of payments to these other uh, these people who sort of serve the poor. We should take care of the poor, not service providers generally. And lastly, economic inclusion. We know, I mean, historically... In, Pretty much everybody agrees that nothing reduces poverty like growing wealth. You know, there's, there's, there's the, old, the hockey stick, famous chart, shows that throughout human history, mankind was desperately poor. And they were ruled over by a tiny elite that was slightly less desperately poor. Well, about 300 years ago, something changed. And you can see this is called the hockey stick because it's coming along flat like that in human wealth. And then suddenly it shoots up, and the whole world becomes wealthier. And that change was the advent of free market capitalism. So we know that free markets, tolerable taxes, reduced regulation, generally produces more wealth, which generally helps lift people out of poverty. But, and this is a big but, because too many people sort of stop at that, we need low taxes, we need deregulation, we need to create more wealth, that that fixes the problem. The but here is only if everybody can participate in that growing economy. If there are barriers, if there are regulations, if there are rules that prevent low-income people from participating in those in that growing economy, then it won't benefit them no matter how much growth there is. And too often there are barriers that get in the way of that, and we think that those barriers need to be removed. Uh, this, is, this is an example just shows you that uh, as GDP per capita in California has been growing, uh, so has the uh, generally the SNAP, which we're using as sort of a, a proxy for the welfare system out there. You can see that there, that you know too often the, the economy is growing and people from Cal- uh, the poor people are not participating in it. Part of that is we think we need to repeal unnecessary occupational licensing laws. Most occupational licensing has nothing to do with health and safety. It has a lot to do with protecting the monopoly powers of existing providers. Uh, very, you know the, the fact that you need to have more time, money, and effort to become a beautician than you do to become a tattoo artist, for example, or an EMT, uh, makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, it, it's designed to simply keep people out of the profession and protect monopoly profits uh, from people who are in the current field. Something needs to be done to deal with that. We should, you should rethink occupational licensing generally. In fact, it was only, only, I believe it was last year, that Governor Newsom signed the legislation to allow pe- the prisoners who had been fighting fires out here to become firefighters. Uh, that sort of thing, just again, it makes very little sense. Along with occupational licensing, occupational zoning is something we need to take another look at. Yes, nobody wants a hog farm built next to them. Harmed, but, but to, you know, but we also need to look at the fact that, as COVID has shown us, uh, you basically have two economies. One group of people are work, very comfortable working from home. Uh, you know, I certainly did that, uh, you know, when COVID shut things down. I simply went, you know, moved my office to my living room and was able to sit down on my computer and do that. Uh, but for a lot of low-income people, they don't have that option. Uh, but there are jobs that they could do from home. You could do hairdressing at home. You could do catering out of your house. You can do, you, you know, people bake cookies and sell them. Those, those sorts of things out there. Florists. There's, there's a host of things that could be done out of your home, but they're, they're blocked by occupational zoning that says you can't do any sort of profession in this area. Or if you do, you can have one delivery a week. Or you can only have one person come by in your house. You can only have one person work for you if you're working out of your home. All those sorts of rules need to be reviewed and done away with. Third is child care. Child care is enormously expensive everywhere, but particularly in California. It's around $18,000, I believe, for a, uh, for a, a child uh, to have to take care of that child through child care in most centers and that sort of thing. There has to be, you know, the effort, you know, there's a lot of efforts, you've seen it now in the Build Back a um, Better Plan, all these sort of things, to come up with subsidies for childcare. But subsidies is often just chasing your tail, number one. You on you, your subsidy, the provider simply raises the price. Uh, you have to come up with a higher subsidy, the, ch- the provider raises the price again, and you're just kind of chasing your tail now. You see that in healthcare, you see that in higher education, where subsidies are simply passed through to ever higher prices, and if you don't get the subsidy, you're sort of out of luck on these sorts of things. The second is these, these subsidies that often come with strings that sort of benefit big daycare, if you will, the, the big four or five providers that do kind of institutional daycare, they're the ones that are going to qualify for these subsidies. Uh, but a lot of low-income people prefer the, the mom-and-pop operation down the street. First of all, these big institutional centers are not located nearby. Second, they don't know these people. They don't trust these people. They much prefer this sort of church basement, uh, the the woman down the street who takes in a handful of kids, that sort of th- uh, things. They're not eligible for these subsidies. Those small non-institutional centers are also the ones that are at least to suffer most in terms of trying to meet these uh, regulations. Now, obviously, you want to regulate health and safety. You don't want pedophiles becoming uh, instructors and things of that nature. But many of these regulations are arbitrary and expensive. For example, you have to have 75 square feet of space per child outdoors and 150 square feet of space indoors for every child you have. And you can't count those areas that are covered by bookcases or desks or tables. I mean, you know, why is 140 square feet just going to, you know, children are going to just die in mass because you have 140 square feet of space? I mean, you know, those sort of things, but they're hugely expensive. The child staff rate is how many t- teachers you have to have per child. Simply redu- uh, allowing one more child per teacher can reduce the cost of child care by as much as $2,000. Uh, these are significant savings that you can make. Retaining health and safety... Retaining protections for children, but you can reduce arbitrary and unnecessary regulation and bring down the cost of health care to where low-income families can be part of that. And then lastly, we think you need to be able to reduce barriers to entrepreneurship overall. This is everything from caps on liquor licenses to how the cannabis industry is regulated to, build, to franchise fees to the license fees you have to have to start a new business all of these things need to be brought down and dealt with. Uh, I've run long, but I'm going to take a couple of minutes to take a couple of questions from you, if you will. So let's, let's see if we can take just a couple more questions on this. Actually, I'm going to say one more thing on this, and then I, I promise I will get to, get to your questions on this. This you'll all recognize as sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, out there. And you can see at the bottom are the very basic, the physical things, making sure people have enough food, shelter, uh, the basics of life. And then it moves up to more self-actualization issues at the top. Too much of California's anti-poverty policies are focused solely on this effort down on the bottom, this last rung on this system, the very material necessities. We need to do that, obviously. That's a necessary commitment. You have to make sure that people aren't starving to death. But it's not enough to really get people out of poverty. If you really want to do something about finding poverty, you've got to move up this hierarchy, up the ladder to the top of the thing. Because in the end, our goal isn't to make poverty less miserable. It isn't to ensure that people barely survive. The basic goal ultimately should be that everyone in California can thrive, can flourish. And if we're going to do that, you have to move up to the top of that pyramid where everyone can rise as far as their individual talents will take them. That's why we need to do more than simply argue about whether we increase programs by 1% or add this requirement onto that program or how we deal with this other work requirement or whatever it might be. We need to move into much broader thinking in terms of fighting poverty, and that's what I hope the proposals that we've made here today are. So thank you all very much, and I will take about five minutes' worth of questions for you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I got a question in the back. Uh, thank you, Michael. Uh,
1: great presentation and lots of great recommendations. I'm George Meyer. I'm a sponsor of Cato. I used to work at Cato, but I'm currently the general manager of Los Angeles Union Station. So the issues of the uh, of the homeless and particularly the mentally ill homeless are a very important part of my job. Just yesterday, we had a uh, death of a. Of a, of a homeless person on campus, uh, so it's a it's something that I deal with daily. Um, I have lots of questions, but really, um, I think my main question is: These are great recommendations. Um, our legislature and our governor and most city mayors are liberal and may not re- react very positively to some of your recommendations. And I'm wondering, um, what is your strategy to uh, get them to
0: listen and to your information, your facts, and your recommendations? Well, first, we're going to listen to them. Uh, one of the things we have been very careful not to do is to say that, hey, I'm from Washington, and I have all the answers, I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm here to help. Uh, no, I mean, we, we listen to them. I've met with them. I've met with the mayors. I've met with the members of the legislature. Liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, uh, just had Jeff Hewitt, the highest-ranking libertarian in the state, uh, speak in, in Sacramento. And they, believe it or not, if you listen to them, they'll listen to you. Now, will they agree with everything? Look, if there's anybody in this room who agrees with all 24 recommendations out there, I really want to meet you. <laughs> Uh, You know, I mean, it's rare. So I I don't think all 24 are going to become law tomorrow, but I do think we can start a discussion and a debate. We're going to have some folks up here with different viewpoints coming up. We're going to have the mayor in later on. I'm sure he doesn't agree with everything we've had to say, but we can start a discussion and a conversation with him. We had a Democratic state senator uh, who spoke at our group meeting in Sacramento two days ago who said, you know, they'd gone through this report with their legislative director marking it up. I mean, people are paying attention to what we have to do. Now, it may be desperation they're even willing to listen to me. But, but uh, you know, I, I do think that change is coming if we have a civil discussion and debate. Very hard in our polarized society there today. But, the, you know, we can do that. There's things in here conservatives are going to hate. There's things in here liberals are going to hate. Let's just talk about all of them and see where we go from there yeah two more qu- take two more questions yours and then yours and then i then I'm going to have to break
1: uh, Thank you mr. Tanner so uh, one of my questions is regarding um, education when it comes to students so we know that in I think uh, there's uh, on campuses a lot of a lot of police officers or they're also called school resource yeah. officers and I know then your research when you discussed about you know how it's working in the schools and prisons but There's that school-to-prison pipeline that I was wondering if you can go into and talk about how, and and currently right now, for the majority of African-American students, they have twice as many SROs at the schools, and we believe there's a contributing factor to them going into prison. So could you just elaborate on
0: that Yeah, there's a huge amount of effort to suggest that when it comes to school discipline, students of color are treated differently than white students. Uh, They're far more likely to be disciplined. They're far more likely to be disciplined more severely uh, if the, and, and, and there is, it's called the school-to-prison pipeline where the, the basically from the school discipline it takes you into the criminal justice system and you end up in prison. That that doesn't need to be solved. Uh, you know, I, I think schools, local school systems need to just make determination based on, on school resource officers you know, whether or not they're needed depending on the, the, le, the threat level in their school, whether there's problems with gangs or things of that, of that nature. But in general, I'm skeptical. Uh, again, it, it's... The idea that somebody with a gun is going to be the solution to social problems uh, concerns me, and I, and I think we too went to whether it's whether it's homelessness or school systems or mental illness. I mean, when you have a mental illness check, why is somebody like you know dressed like RoboCop dealing with you know with the with the mentally ill? Too often that escalates, and you end up with somebody shot, and then you know problems with that. It, what we really need to do is be dealing with social problems by people who are trained to deal with social problems, not, not law enforcement. I'm, look, nothing against law enforcement. They have a terribly hard job, but we make it harder for them if we simply if we require them to do things that are outside of their basic skill set. Last question.
1: The uh, California Policy Lab pushed out a report saying that more than half of California households leaving CalFresh program are still eligible. Do you have any recommendations for how to streamline processes for people to actually look at an application and maybe have less of a questionnaire than you would to get a security clearance yeah, in
0: Washington? That's why, in general, I think we should be moving to this idea of cash rather than in-kind benefits because you have so many different programs, and they overlap in various ways. There, there are actually more than 100 federal anti-poverty programs. Uh, if you throw in state and local programs, you're dealing with around 120 Uh, different programs, and they all have different eligibility levels, they have different work requirements, they have, you you know, if you're eligible for program A, you automatically get program B, but you lose, can't be part of program C unless you're also in D, in which case F doesn't apply, I mean, no wonder, you know, as you say, people who are eligible don't get the benefits, people who are not eligible, you know, shouldn't necessarily be eligible are, are collecting, uh, it doesn't make it. What we really need to do is streamline this, consolidate these programs into a small number of programs, and turn those programs, wherever possible, into cash.